What's up and welcome to another episode of the Tabletop for Two podcast. I'm Brad Van Vutt. I'm Emily Van Vutt. And uh, we are back with our first episode of 2017. Please forgive the nasliness. Our little germ magnet has passed it around to everyone in the house. <laughs> We're, we've both been been ill. I've been having this cough that won't go away. And Well, so is he. Oh, it's the, it's the season for it, though, I guess. God, I can't wait till winter's over and it just started. So uh, later in the episode uh, for our main topic, we're actually taking a look at Kickstarter and specifically how we use Kickstarter and what what we found to be successful and the types of games that have worked the best for us. Because I got a hair uh, up my butt to do some <laughs> data analysis on this oh, stuff. Lordy Lord! Um, but we have a couple games to talk about before we get there. Before we do that. Uh, just a reminder of where you can find us. So Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is where we're most active in social media. You can search at Tabletop for Two and find us at all of those. Make sure you subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play Music, or whichever podcatcher that you happen to use. Uh, we have the BGG Guild number 2623. Cruise it on there and uh, subscribe to those notifications if you please. And also uh, check out Periscope at Tabletop for Two, where hopefully we'll get some more live plays together. I really want to do Clask soon. I think that oh, would be fun. God. I think that'll be fun for a live play. So, well, make sure let me let me know because I want to make sure I have my nails done. No one's gonna see your hand; it's under the board. I don't care. Weird. Anytime I I don't want to have naked nails. Sorry. Fair enough. Well, so hopefully that's something we can do soon. And again, um, if there's if there's any games you'd like to request us to live play, um, one we have to own it. Um, first of all. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's the biggest stipulation. And uh, but check out there's a thread on in the guild um, where we're kind of taking requests, not guaranteeing to do all of them, but we're just kind of seeing you know what what our listeners are looking for in terms of that as we you know do that a little bit more and more here in 2017. Um, so the first game that we are going to talk about this week is a new game that we just received a couple weeks ago from Kickstarter. Uh, so it's apropos for the discussion that we are <laughs> going to be having later today. Uh, this is the new Elaine VR game, um, which is called Tramways, um, which is his new... Uh, I'm, we don't have any other of the VR games. He's done a few um, other ones that have had some critical acclaim, which M has never heard of at all, no. including uh, hey, like it, Clinic. You guys and, can't see this, but I'm giving him a blank stare right. across the way here. I'm like, what are you talking about? I've heard good things about his games, though. They tend to be Can you tell he's the heavy. dad and I'm the mom? He does all the research on this stuff, and I just, you know... So take care of stuff. <laughs> Tramways is a route building game um, that's got some unique twists and turns with it. Yes. I would say hardy har. Well, I'm not trying to even be punny <laughs> when I say that, but it's uh, it's true. Um, it's a but it's a route building game, but it's also a card driven game as well with yes. some deck building elements with it. Um, not too much. Pretty light on the deck build. I mean, it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's no. You know, it's not like I'm in a domain where you're building a giant deck of cards. But there is some card drafting and, and things of that nature. Um, you are, I guess, competing rail lines inside of this city, um, who are trying to keep the people of the city as happy as possible. And you're doing that by building a rail network, um, establishing some new buildings, upgrading those things, and then transporting passengers from wherever they are to where they want to get to. And there's all sorts of different buildings that you can transport them to, which has some pluses and minuses to them. Mm -hmm. um, all the while, you have this stress track that you're managing, which uh, which you can use to your advantage to help you maybe do extra actions and stuff like that on your turn. Um, or, but it's worth negative points at the end of yeah, the game. Yeah, if, if your people are stressed out, then you're going to suffer for it at the end of the game. Um, each round of the game, and there's six in, in total, goes through three phases. There's a pretty cool auction phase. Um, I'm sure the auction phase shines more with more than two players, 
Because it's interesting because it's it's an auction where you have to pay for every bid you make. So like if I bid two dollars um, in the auction phase and then Emma outbids me with a three dollar bid, I then have to, if I decide to outbid her with a four dollar bid, I still have to pay for eat for my two dollar bid and my four dollar bid. Yeah. So you that, have to make sure it's really worth it. I was gonna say that's one of those things that was kind of like eh, like. Well, I I like it only because it kind of forces you to make your best bid right away you know what i mean because you know if you're gonna have to keep paying for it over and over again yeah you're 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 incentivized (laughs) to make a strong bid out of the gate so that you are you know you don't feel like paying like crazy through the nose um and whoever wins the auction not only gets first player uh which increases your stress level funnily enough yeah but you also get first choice of these cards that'll be available to draft they can be um, the second phase of the of each round is where the where the action happens. Mostly, it's the action phase round, and there you get up to three actions basically per game round. Each player does one action, and then it cycles back around where each player can do two actions if they want to. And the actions are actually pretty simple. This is a pretty rules light game. Um, you're you're going to lay you can lay or upgrade rails. Um, you can build or upgrade buildings, or you can move passengers. The or get money. Or get money as well. Yeah, that's that's the other thing you can do. Um, upgrading rails is beneficial because as your rails get used, upgraded rails earn more money. Mm-hmm. Um, upgrading buildings is helpful because they're worth victory points when you do that. <laughs> the little pieces, when I was looking at them, because the pieces are two-sided. There's a plain side, and then there's a side with a white stripe. I'm like, are we upgrading to a monorail or what? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But the moving of the passengers is really where the game is that is most strategic because you're trying to get passengers to different buildings. There's four types of buildings in the game and transporting a passenger to a specific building gives you a benefit of some kind. If it's like an industrial building, you'll get a railway worker, which you need to build rails in the game, but you also gain more stress. They also have commerce buildings, which gets you more cars to add to your deck, but it also increases your stress. What's the one that decreased it? Uh, The residential area. So basically, you know, you send your people home and they... And they're like, yay, I get to have a drink now. There's also a leisure area that you can essentially send someone there and pay money to get victory points. So you're, you know, essentially spent, you know, the more you spend, the happier you'll be. Well, yeah, but then you got to watch because I remember I did not have one card in my deck that had the red on it, so I couldn't partake in any of the And that's what I'm talking about with the card-driven play. So during each round, you have this hand of cards, and each card has a number of different symbols on them. Um, It might be there's symbols for taking money, for example. There's symbols for laying rail. There's symbols that represent each of the building types in the game. There's symbols that have the different actions that you can do in the game. There's upgrade tracks. There's a build building. There's an upgrade your building. Yeah, and so forth and so on. But when you take an action, you have to play a number of cards out of your hand that have the symbols that you need to show in order to do the action. So, for example, if I want to build like a three space you know, railway, essentially. Um, I have to have cards in my hand that show three rail spaces, and I, if, if I'm completing the link, I also have to have a card that shows one of the two destinations of the, of the complete train link that I'm making, essentially, for that game. Mm-hmm. Now, some cards have multiple symbols. Normally, you're only allowed to use one symbol per card, but if you take stress, you can actually use multiple symbols which, on each card, which makes it more efficient. I only found that to really be beneficial one time for me. Yeah. Because every, every other time I had so many cards at my disposal that it wasn't really worth it. Right. Well, But sometimes like you need two, you need two symbols on a card in order to do the action that you want to do. So there's, you know, there's times where you do that. Um, the last phase is you're just kind of 
tossing cards out of your hand for more money or railway workers or things also, of that nature. you didn't say about transporting passengers. Not only do you have to have the destination, but you also have to have another card as a ticket. Right. Most most of the cards in the game also can represent a train ticket, which you can use to move your passengers around the board. Um, the gameplay goes until six rounds, and then whoever has the most happiness points at the end after suffering their penalties as well uh, is going to be the winner. I found this game really interesting um kind of reminded me of like brass light in a lot of ways <laughs> um just because with the car driven gameplay and the route building moving passengers reminds me of shipping goods in brass mm-hmm. basically from your cotton mills um it was interesting i really liked it it was, it was like brass that can be played in about half the time because tramways only took us about 60 to 75 minutes first play and we mm-hmm. could probably get it under 60 with subsequent Most play likely. time i said I my my only thing was I kept getting confused when I was doing points and money and all that stuff. Um, but I think I get it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I get it now. Well, if you've if you've played other um, train games before, it shares a lot of similarities. Like I mean, ha- like you know, like railways of the world. If you're shipping goods, you you know, everyone whose rail gets used, you know, gets a benefit from it. Victory points usually. Well, like I said, I had the usual first couple turns in this one. I was like, hmm, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to, you know, roll mm-hmm. with it and see what happens. Yeah. But it started to click, you know, about later on in the game. I think third, third turn in, I was like, okay, I get yeah. it. Um, this is another one though with two players that you kind of have to be purposefully aggressive. Um, Cause you have, but you essentially have to make it so that your opponent's forced to use as many of your, railways as you can Mm -hmm. that can get a little tricky though because at the beginning of the game each player is assigned a number of parcels which are spaces that essentially each player owns that you can use to build buildings on if you want to or you can use in the spaces that only you can construct rail line on and that can be tricky because your opponent can never connect a link to one of your parcels so you really have or unless it becomes a building in which case then then they can do it but it makes it um it does make it challenging to kind of get in each other's way mm-hmm. more so than a game like railways of the world is for example um but this definitely does fill kind of that niche in about half the time i found with that first playthrough that we did um there's also a lot of variety because the game comes with i think like 14 different map boards and you only use four of them in a two-player game Mm -hmm. and each of those also has a normal and hard side which is kind of neat as well um so it won't get stale from that standpoint um yeah trailways is cool though if you like um route building games i would certainly i do like the route yeah i was it's certainly one i'd recommend it's to me it's kind of like this is sort of the 13 days as you know 13 days is to Twilight Struggle, uh, Tramways is to, like, Brass or Railways of the World, if that makes sense. That's kind of where I sit on it. Okay, that sounds good. And you dug it as well, I assume? I did. Well, like I said, I love the artwork and everything. That's, you know, very cool. I like the the Art Deco stuff. I do, too. That's one of my favorite art styles, for sure. I just think it's so awesome. Yeah, it definitely has that 1920s aesthetic to it. But it's neat, yes. Yeah, it's got a... um, got the uh what the gatsby vibe going on mm-hmm. yeah cool. but yeah i did i liked it a lot actually all right well that's tramways um might be tough to find uh but again if, if it sounds interesting from us talking about it definitely seek yourself out a copy i think you'll be pleasantly surprised yeah um next is actually one that we got for christmas and that is key to the city london which brad yeah, mom, mom came through with this one i wasn't expecting that <laughs> For sure. Yeah, well, this one was a more expensive one, wasn't it? 
Well, it just came out, and it's in. It's from Game Salute, essentially, so it's going to be more expensive over here. They did in the, the U.S. They did the Alien Frontiers. They've done a lot of games, but Alien Frontiers was one of them. Yes, that's the only one I really remember yeah. because we ordered the. I had to order the thing from them directly. Remember? Yeah. yeah. This is this is the sort of reimagining of Keyflower, mm-hmm. which we had talked about possibly reacquiring because um we we sort of missed it and wanted to get it back. Um, but I think this might fill that hole mm-hmm. relatively well because essentially Key to the City London is Keyflower with some with a more streamlined rule set. Right. Essentially. Um it, it Plus might, it's set in London and, and Which is cool, yeah. It's got you know, you different, landmarks. different landmarks and this, that and the other. So in this game, um it's another game filled with the auctions, but the key system the key flower system of auctions and keys of the city auctions are a little bit unique compared to most other auction games that you'll play. Um you have a certain number of colored meeples, which are called keeples in the game, of course. Um, And you'll have them in some combination of red, blue, and yellow. And there's a number of tiles laid out in the center of the in the center of the air play area in each of the four rounds, and you are bidding on those tiles to try and acquire them into your area. The way you bid is by placing one or more of your meeples of the same color on the edge of the tile, the and they're hexagonal tiles that faces you. Now, if your opponent wants to outbid you, they have to place this a greater number of meeples, but in the same color that you've already established mm-hmm. on tiles. So basically, once a color for a tile has been established in meeples, it stays that way until the end of the round. What's also interesting is that you can actually use those tiles while they're in the center by putting meeples on top of them. Uh, the, ben- the drawback to doing that is that whoever wins the tile actually gets those meeples back again, where they can then keep them in the supply for the next round. Um, when the round's over... All the players who won bids will get new will get to get those tiles and place them into their city. And in future rounds, you can activate those tiles for their benefits as well while they're in your city. And you can activate your opponent's tiles as well. Herein lies where Mama screwed up. Because I wasn't paying attention to certain things on certain tiles of mine that I was acquiring, and I wasn't able to do all the things I wanted to because mm-hmm. I forgot Oh, I need to be able to produce this type of material, and I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah. This ew. this this is a game that does definitely require a lot of long term strategy. Yeah. Um, acquiring the tiles That's is okay. also. I won't make that mistake yeah. again. Well, acquiring the tiles is also important because they're worth victory points, and all the tiles that you acquire can be upgraded. Um, the ways you upgrade them is there's different types of resources you can collect in the game. The first are disposable resource or consumable resources, um, which certain tiles will give you. And then you can also establish connections. There's six different color connections. Connections are just little wood pieces that lay across two tiles. But certain tiles, in order to upgrade them or, or score certain victory points, require that they have certain color connections that are touching their tile. So you have to also be cognizant of where those connections are going as well. Um, there's also landmark tiles, which can be double upgraded for massive victory points. Um, and that's pretty much it. The game takes place over four rounds. Uh, once you're done, you tally up all the points in your city. Whoever has the most points is the winner of the game. Um, yeah, Keyflower was a game that we had that I stupidly sold because um, I thought M didn't like it and then found out she actually did like it. Um, so we've been looking to get it back. I think that this version of the game suits us well, though, because it's this, it's essentially the same game, but they trimmed out a lot of the more fiddly bits from the regular Keyflower game and kind of abstained them. 
from this version. So like this one doesn't like Keyflower had green meeples, which were like a wild color. Um, this one doesn't have that in this version of the game. Um, in the other version, you also had to the round tiles that show you which round you're in can also be won by each player. And in Keyflower, you had to actually bid on those tiles separately. In Key to the City, you actually, based on when you decide to pass from the round, you place a ship token that matches your player color onto one of these slots that are available on the next era tile. And based on the slot that you pick, you'll either get more meeples and be able to go earlier in the turn order next round, or you'll go last, but you'll get to take that river tile and add it to your city. So I, I appreciate those streamlining elements a little bit. Um, do you even remember Keyflower? Because it was so long ago well, like I since said, we last played You it. asked me this right before we played this, and I was like, I remember certain things. Like I remember bidding on the tiles with the meeples, and mm. it had to be... One more than this, that, and the other. Right. And I remembered I could use your tiles, mm-hmm. you know, in your in your little city over there, and things like that. But I didn't remember everything. Right. All I know is I liked it, and you got rid of it. Well, you do, do you, that, you do that to me a lot. Did Did it actually work out in the end, though? Um. Yeah. Actually, I think it did work out because while I did like Keyflower. It did have a lot of fiddly parts, I remember, and I feel like it took longer than it should have, especially with two people. Mm-hmm. I think this one uh, this one definitely hits the mark that we want it to. Yeah. And, the, I mean, the other thing Keyflower did is it also had, like, this transport mechanic where you had – you actually stored resources on the tiles, and you had to move them – to other tiles in order to get there. Like I, I, I just appreciate that they took out all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, key to the city in London. Um, well actually here's, here's the interesting question. If you already own key flower and you like key flower, would you recommend anyone to pick this game up? If they already have the original one? Um, I would only if you want a better two-player experience because I think Keyflower would serve you better at higher player counts. That's fair. It's an interesting way to interesting way to look at that. See, I I I lay more on the side of you probably don't need Key to the City London if you already have Keyflower. Now that being said, if you don't have either game and you're like, which one should I get? I think I, this one would probably yeah, be the I better way to go. I, I, I think I think with this one you gain yeah. the benefit of of having that couple of years of refinement behind the game. You as know well. why this is happening? Because you that? didn't bring up water. Could be true. Maybe we'll have to maybe we'll have to take a quick pause, but the audience won't know to go get it. So yeah, that was uh that was Key to the City London. Um, definitely a worthy successor to Keyflower for sure. So next up, this is a we got the newest expansion for. One of our favorite two-player games, Seven Wonders Duel. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Seven Wonders Duel Pantheon. Um, now, quick side note before we get into the gameplay. I love it when games come with custom inserts that are specifically designed to hold that game, except when an expansion comes out and they don't take <laughs> the expansion into consideration when they design the insert in the first place, which this game did. Seven Wonders Duel has a terrific insert, and Seven Wonders Duel Pantheon has a terrific insert as well, but I'd like to be able to store them all in the same box. <laughs> and I'm going to have to throw away the inserts if I care to do that, which I find really annoying. That's a small gripe. That's okay, though. We'll move past it. Not a big deal. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect from this expansion because Seven Wonders Duel, we think, is already a really good game. And while normally expansions... I was going to say, did it meet your expansion criteria? It, we'll, we'll see. Cause this, cause, <clears throat> so the thing is, with certain games... Expansions, you know, my, my golden rule is expansions make a great game better. And 
sometimes they make them, they can actually, you know, take what's a really solidly built game and overcomplicate it for no reason at all. I think Summoner's Duel lies somewhere in the middle of those two statements because it makes it a very different game and it makes Seven Wonders Duel a more interesting game and a heavier game even, I I might say. I don't know if it's necessarily better this way because what base Seven Wonders Pan se- bleh, what base Seven Wonders Duel does is pretty good as it is. Mm-hmm. But what Pantheon adds is so we'll, we'll talk about the I'll, I'll describe what the expansion does, but then we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit. Um, this essentially adds these new god cards that you can add to the game, and the gods are in five different schools, and there's three cards in each school. These are shuffled up and placed in separate decks when the game starts. And you put these little tokens in the first age um, of the game. You put these little tokens on some of the face down cards. Now, I like this aspect of it because if at the end of your turn um, you have to turn over one of the face down cards that one of these tokens resides on, you actually get to draw a couple cards from that god's deck and pick one of them and put them face down on this like god track that's at the top of the main board for the game. And where you place it matters because you're going to be able to use these gods in future ages of the game. But the closer they are to you, the cheaper they are to use, because you have to spend money in order to activate their power. So the closer gods to you are going to be cheaper, the gods further away from you are going to be more expensive, but also cheaper for your opponent. So you really have to weigh out the best position to place these god cards in, because you don't want to give your opponent something that's really good. Um, But I like that aspect of it, because it incentivizes you to flip over Cards, which normally in Seven Wonders Duel is a huge no no, right? right. So, I so I like that part of it. So, so once you get past age one, there's going to be all these god cards that are in this track above the board. Starting with age two, you have a new action that you're able to do where you don't actually take a card out of the pyramid, instead, you can pay money to activate one of these god cards. And they have and they have powerful, they're usually like one shot abilities that are kind of similar to the abilities that are on the wonders Mm -hmm. in the game. Um, or some of them are worth points at the end of the game and as well. Don't forget, there's the door card in the blank spot. Yeah, that well, that there's there's a card that's kind of that'll make its way into every game that lets you use many like one of the god cards from one of the five schools, except you have to pay out the nose through it essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also in Era Two, there are these discount tokens that are on some of the face down cards. Tokens. Yeah, that you can get to make the god power activating. I'm a loves coupon. A little bit cheaper. Um, the last thing that the expansion changes is instead of the guilds in 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 age three, you have these pantheon cards, and the pantheon cards are just set collectors. Like if you have one of them at the end of the game, it's worth five. If you collect two together, they're worth what is it? Twelve. Twelve or something. Or something. And then if you collect all three, they're worth twenty one points yeah. at the end of the game. And depending on which god cards you placed in the tableau. You might be able to build them for free, essentially, mm-hmm. or you might, you know, build them with very expensive resources. The the, the resource cost is comparable to that of the guilds. Um, other than that, the game plays exactly the same way. Scoring works almost the same way, and that's kind of what it adds. So, like I said, well, first, what did you think about about it? I really enjoyed it. Um, I did kind of miss the guilds, mm-hmm. you know, because I like the guilds. They're good, you know, point scorers for mm-hmm. me. And we didn't really have much in the way of uh, anything to do with the Pantheon cards. <clears throat> what do you mean? We used almost all of them. No, I'm saying... Oh, well, well the, uh, it, when you win, when, when M1, of course, the first game we played with a science victory. So, of course, all the point-scoring cards were negated completely. <laughs> um, but this, but they Don't be mad. 
But I mean, in in the third age, before you did get that science victory, you were playing around those Pantheon cards because yes. since they were all face up, you could see that I would be able to get them very easily. So you had right. to dance around that strategy. And you had all the right tokens to get them right. for free. So I was like, uh, uh-uh. uh. So so you liked it? That's cool. I, like I think I liked it too, but it makes. It definitely changes Seven Wonders Duel from what it was to something that's a little bit different, for sure. Because adding, even though you're just adding the small mechanic, it completely changes how you approach the game, which is a good thing for a game that, you know, a lot of people have probably played dozens of times at this point, I would imagine. Certainly, we've played it a considerable well, like, amount. And I said, we don't have to use it all the time, but, you know, mm-hmm. if we want to switch it up, we'll switch it up and throw it in there. Well, I think I guess that's the part that, that is really good, is that it is completely modular. Like, if you want to throw it in, it's easy to do. If you want to pull it, you know, not use it in a certain game, it's easy to do. Um, certainly, if you feel that Seven Wonders Duel is getting stale, this would be a great thing to mm-hmm. add to, to mix it up a little bit. Um, it definitely makes it the game heavier and longer though. Like it probably took us 15 minutes longer to play that, you know, the game that we played. That's also because we were just learning what the, some of the symbols on the cards were and, you know, just trying to figure things out a little better. Well, but see, I, I think that, you know, I don't, I don't think that was learning length. I think that's just going to be how long that particular variant takes to play because you're, you are being a little bit more deliberate with your decisions and you're all, Mm -hmm. and you're, you know, considering stuff a little bit more. Um, it's not a bad thing. Only time will sell. It's not a bad thing, but that being said, if you are someone who's like, oh, this is a 20, 30 minute game, <clears throat> it's probably more 45 minute game now when you add this expansion to the mix, which is still for us in, you know, like power filler territory, I guess. Yeah. But, um, but it, it was interesting. Like I said, I, I wasn't, I'm not head over heels for it. As far as what I recommended, like if you really like what Seven Wonders Duel does now like if you like it to be like that you know like like the way to like a lost cities i guess you could say then i think you can do without but if you want to make this a little bit more of a challenging game get it to like a targy level maybe like in terms of complexity then i think it's a solid addition um i, I have a feeling you would say that you would just straight recommend it to anyone that has someone or Zool. well yeah because i yeah. mean if they're like us and they've played it a bunch of times yeah i mean like anything else Mm -hmm. any you gotta you know switch it up once in a while keep things exciting so there you go seven (laughs) wonders little pantheon um like i said i wasn't sure what to expect and it definitely it definitely added more than i thought it would to the gameplay that that much i can say for certain oh i don't see that on there this week what's that you didn't do the pandemic no, because I want to play the other half of the expansion first. We also got oh, the experimental right. magic expansion there's, there's, for there's Pandemic the Cure, but we've only played with one of the modules that it had. <clears> so we'll probably talk we might talk about that one next episode. So okay. stay tuned for that. Oh, last but not least on the list is America. Yeah, this is the this is the game from Bezier Games, um, the trivia game that handles trivia games. So the the biggest issue with trivia games is if you don't know stuff, you're gonna get smoked mm-hmm. usually. Um we played Timeline Challenge about a year ago, um, which was a game that I think handled that aspect of... Really? We played it a year ago? It feels like it's been a year. It's been a while. I know that. I don't think it's been a year. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that that took a step in the right direction of handling trivia for people that don't have direct knowledge of certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think America does a good job doing the same thing because because in in america well it's like wits and wagers but smarter kind of sort of um (laughs) 
That's well, without without the am. without the gambling aspect so much. Um, so in America, it takes place over six rounds. Each round, there's a card that has something that's in like the Americana culture, essentially. So it might be like so one of the, the first card that we had was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> right? And then each card will have three, four, no, no, three I categories. It no, it's three categories. Um, one of them is going to be a year. Um, one of them is going to be a state. And one of them is going to be a number. Um, the and the year question will ask you a you know question that takes that has the answer is a certain year. The state one it's a certain state, and the number of questions a certain number. And what you're doing is there's spaces on the board. You're trying to kind of predict what those answers are going to be. So if you put one of your you're going to take turns placing these guess cubes on the board. And then once all the players have placed all the cubes they want to place, then the answers will be revealed. Now, if you guess correctly, so either, so like, let's say for states. So the question was, you know, which state does Buffy the Vampire Slayer take place in? The answer was California. So if you guessed California, you'll get, I think it's seven points, if I'm not mistaken, for guessing correctly. If you placed adjacent to California, then you'll get three points for each correct guess. So it's one of those things that if you know the answer, not only can you place it on the correct answer, but you can also place your cubes around it to, to rack up the points as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also play what's kind of the, what I call the craps line, where you can guess that either no one's going to get the exact answer or no one's going to get even the exact answer or adjacent. And that way, if everyone completely whiffs, you'll get points for everyone failing. Isn't that hedging your bet? No, that's that's called being Something. the that in craps that's called being the jerk, basically. <laughs> yeah, there's all yeah, I'm not a gambler, so I really you, don't know. you can play you can play the don't come line where you're basically <laughs> betting on someone to throw a seven so they crap out and make everyone else lose money. It makes it makes you it makes you a jerk at the table if you do that. Oh jeez. Um but that they essentially have that in the game. Now the reason that you may not want to throw all of your guest cubes out on the board is because if you guess correctly, you get your cube back for the next round. However, if you guess incorrectly, you don't get your cube back. They get kind of stationed off into a side area, and you only get one of those cubes from that side area back per round. So you have to be careful because if you make a lot of wild, incorrect guesses, you're not going to have many answers that you can give out yep. in future rounds. <laughs> and after six rounds, whoever's the most victory points wins. Um, this is not a strong two-player game. No. I will say that. Well, isn't it? doesn't it say on there it's a party game? Well, most trivia games are, right? And I think this will be more fun with our friends. I think they'll like this one. I think so, too. So, yeah, if, if you just... Uh, I, I've still yet to find the best two-player trivia game. I don't know. I don't know if there's a really good one that exists. Bezzer Wizard probably was the closest one that works well with two. Mm-hmm. So I would not recommend this if you just play with two players. But Bezzer Wizard's now outdated. Huh? I said, but Bezzer yeah, Wizard's now outdated. Um... But yeah, this one is this one is still um, it's still a fun game, and if you're going to play with parties, I would recommend it. The gameplay is fun. It's a def- it's definitely an interesting way to do trivia. Um, like I said, like I, like I mentioned, it does the wits and wagers thing very well because um, you're still kind of betting too. You're betting, you know, to see if you're going to. You're betting that right your buddy's answer. right. <laughs> and uh, it's just a really clever way to do it. Like I said, it just doesn't work very well with. Especially two. if you know particular friends are, you know. Well versed in certain hmm. certain things. Now I will say between between this and timeline because I feel like these games are very similar with what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, timeline is a stronger two player game, not by much, but it does do two players 
a little bit better than America does. Um, But I still recommend America as a really solid trivia game Mm -hmm. um, and worth picking up if you have those big groups, because I think this will play up to six players, and a six-player game probably be really interesting of this. Oh, God, we'd have some fun with that. Yeah, but like I said, two players, don't recommend it. I would stay away because it's not really worth it to buy for just two. So that was America from Bezier Games. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about kind of looking at our Kickstarter history and seeing seeing what that looks like and what Kickstarter kind of means to us, I guess, at this point in time. So stay tuned. Welcome back. So the other day I was on BGG and... Somebody was lamenting, as people are wont to do on BG, about the success rate of Kickstarters. And, and you, you've, I'm sure if you frequent those forums, you know, you know, oh, you know, like 30% of the games are good, and that most of it is crap, this, that, or the other. It's kind of a like a stigma around Kickstarter games um, in general. And for whatever reason, when I saw this, I kind of, I wanted to kind of sit back and kind of and dive into our own history, because Em and I have backed a lot of Kickstarters, and... I never really took the time to sit down and consider whether or not, um, you know, whether or not it's been a good investment for us, basically, with all the stuff that we've done. So I basically compiled a spreadsheet, and and I'm using the data that we have here to kind of look at to see how our Kickstarter backing history has been, how successful it's been. What the service kind of means to us and and kind of what you know we're going to do with it from here now, a couple of caveats before we get rolling into this first of all, this isn't intended to be you know definitive evidence of all oh, this is how this is how well Kickstarter works. This is completely anecdotal it's completely based on our tastes, projects that we've backed games that we like or don't like um so don't look at this as a sweeping generalization of the state of Kickstarter or anything like that. This is specifically around us, but I just thought it would be an interesting thing to kind of analyze Mm -hmm. and look at. Um, So the way that I did this is I looked at the 43 games um, that we've backed and received on Kickstarter up to this point. Now, I I made the cutoff. I can't believe we backed that many. Golly. I know. Um, December 18th was my cutoff. So this means uh, One Deck Dungeon, I think, was the last game on the list that I evaluated because that's the last one that we had received and played by the time that I made this list. Um, so forty, yeah, forty three game titles, um, which is pretty impressive here. So I looked at five categories for each game. Um, I looked at do we still own the game? Um, I looked at was it from an established publisher? Meaning was it a publisher who had published something before this game on Kickstarter? Was it a first time Kickstarter publisher? Um, the way that I and and by the way, the way that I handled stuff like. Um, like the Tiny Epic Games, for example. So for Tiny Epic Kingdoms, I did not mark off established publisher because at that point, Gamelin Games was not an established publisher. But when I did Tiny Epic Galaxies, they were. We had already had a history with them. So we kind of knew what we were expecting. Um, I also looked at whether the game was a reprint of a previous of a previously released game because I think that also matters as well where you have that introspective of how good or the game is. And then the last comment I looked at is are games that we do own but do we play it regu- on a regular basis? You know, it, yes, we. There's a lot of games that we kept, but how often do we regularly play um, a lot of the games that we kept? Because some of them don't get played so regularly. So, here's kind of the data that I found, and then we can kind of use this data as a jumping-off point to have a broader discussion about what Kickstarter means to to Em and me. So, like Em said, she couldn't believe it. Forty-three games we looked at here. 
Um, that's of, a lot of money because I'm looking at this list and I'm like, holy certainly God, is. that's a lot of money that we put out. Certainly is. So uh, of those 43 games, uh, we still own 30 of them, which is a 70% um, retention rate, I guess you could say. For those games, which is much higher than normally people see, than than people will say online. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, when I go online, you know the bet the best I usually see is like fifty percent mm-hmm. from most people. So I think seventy percent. I guess we're just very good at picking what we know that's going to work well for us. Well, that's a very interesting point that you made. Remember that. We'll get around to it <laughs> later on. Um. So of the games that we backed, um, thirty three of the forty three were from. Established publishers, 77%. Um, Of the games that we backed, only seven of them were from publishers that were using Kickstarter for the very first time. That's only 16% of the total games Mm -hmm. that we backed. And we backed five reprints, basically, that were on the list. Mm -hmm. So that's the ownership. And one table, which (laughs) which is not a part of this analysis at all. Um... So so I dove a little bit deeper once we got past those baseline stats. So of the games that we own but don't play regularly, so we so we still own 30 games, there's about 12 of them that don't hit the table frequently at all, which is actually two-fifths of the games that we kept, which I find to be an interesting number as well. Um, of the games... Well, I forgot we even had this one game. Which one game? <laughs> Sabrosa. Uh, yeah. I forgot that we even we do. had that. So here's a, and, and so I wanted to kind of dive into the own statistics as well. So of the games from the 33 established publishers, we still own 26 of those, which is a 79% retention rate. That's pretty good. And when I'm talking established publishers, I'm talking about your your TMGs, your Dice Hate Me games, you know, things of that nature. Guess how many games we still own of the 10 games from unestablished publishers that how we backed? Many? Only four. Only 40% of those games that we that we hung on to. And we kept we kept 60% of the reprints that we did that we backed. So kind of diving down deeper, looking at games from established publishers that we play regularly out of the 26 that we kept. Uh, 17 of them get played on a regular basis, so about 65%. Of the games from an unestablished publisher that we hung on to, of those four, only one of them gets played on a regular basis. Which one is that? Uh, I'd have to double-check that real quick, because I didn't, I didn't write any of the titles down. I was Larry just kind of looking. Kingdom. Oh, there you go. That is, that is, that is indeed it. So. Sorry, I'm looking, at the, I'm looking down. I was like, wait, which one is that? But if you look at just total projects backed for each of those, um, so we regularly play 17 out of the 33 games from established publishers. That's about 50%. For regularly play of unestablished publishers, it's only 1 out of 10, which is a very interesting... I, I think I think more than anything, that might tell most of the story right there. Um, if, you were pre, if you used Kickstarter previously, there's a 75% chance that we kept your game and didn't get rid of it. Um, if you've never used, if it was your first time using Kickstarter, only a forty-three percent chance that we uh, that we kept your game. So I found this day to be very kind of eye-opening as far as what Kickstarter is being used for by M and I, pretty much. Because when Kickstarter started, 
this was supposed to be like the bastion for you know creators that didn't have traditional avenues to get and for board games specifically that didn't have avenues to get their board games published to be able to get their games out or for upstart publishing companies um, to kind of have an avenue to get those to get those games produced that didn't have the capital up front in order to fund the game. And it's interesting because the most reliable games that we've backed have been from companies who know what they're doing, essentially. Right. And first-time well, creators. That makes sense. It does make sense, but it, it, but doesn't that kind of then defy what Kickstarter is supposed should to be? be? You know what I mean? If, if it's being used essentially as just a you know capital generator, a pre-order system of some sort, does it does is that what Kickstarter is supposed to be? I don't know what the answer to that question is. It's just it's just an interesting thought process. What do you think about all this uh, all this information, well, despite no, the fact like, that it's a lot of money? I th- oh god, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm looking down this list and I see cha-ching, cha-ching. Oh, you see your dollar signs. Oh god. Should I should I put like like a dollar sign rating like they do on Google for restaurants like as far as how four. expensive the game was? Like half of these on here are four. You know, what? I probably should have done that because I wonder I wonder if there's like a confirmation bias as far as how much the game costs to hang on to it. Probably not. <sighs> No, I think we've definitely gotten rid of a few. Um, hello, we got rid of Carson City. That one cost us some bucks. It's true too. So, um, but no, like I, I get what you're saying about oh, it's a pre-order system, mm-hmm. but they also are using it to help make the game better. Like you get the the nicer components in the night, mm-hmm. and you know they have the stretch goals. Oh, you can get this and this and this and this. You know what I mean? They're doing it to get more content into the game as well, mm-hmm. which makes for a better experience if you think of it that way. That's a good point. That's a very fair point. And I know I know a lot of um, a lot of companies while they started on Kickstarter. I'm thinking of TMG. Originally, it was a Kickstarter company. Mm-hmm. Um, Stonemeyer Games was originally a company that started Kickstarter. A lot of those companies have moved away from Kickstarter now at this point mm-hmm. because they don't need to use it anymore. Like like TMG when they well, use Kickstarter that necessity. So it's one it's something to help you establish yourself and now they're, you know, now they are an established force in the community. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But th- but for every TMG, I feel like there's like three queen games who use Kickstarter despite the fact that they really don't need to at this point in the game anymore. Or at least I don't think they do. I, of course, don't know anything about queen games' internal workings. Maybe they do need Kickstarter um, as much as they use it for everything. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. But so, I mean, that kind of says to me then... The success on Kickstarter is out there, but you just have to go after companies who are more established. Now, what does that mean if you're a first-time Kickstarter um, uh, publisher? Unfortunately, for from kind of where we sit and looking at this data, it means that if you if it's your first time and your game doesn't look super compelling, that I'm you know fixed to back it, I might have to take a wait and see approach on that. Yeah, because it's um. Well, and I mean, a lot of times we will do that. We'll have we'll do the the, the dollar pledge just to get the updates and see how things are coming along, mm-hmm. just to see, you know, if it gets more interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's it's not even that. It's just like there's so many games. Like I look at a couple of the games in this list, and not to you know not to put any anyone on blast by any means, but you know, let's uh, let me pull up the list again, and we'll take a look at some games that we don't currently own. 
um, that were big disappointments. Um, I look at like Lagoon, for example. Um, you were really excited to get that one, and it sucked. Yeah, the tiny Epic games have kind of fallen <laughs> Not off. Not to put too fine a yeah. point on it, it was a terrible game. Yeah. Um, we've kind of fallen out of favor with the tiny Epic games a little bit. Um, Carson City was one that was a bit of a letdown for us. Um, Epic Card Game was one that, uh, that we had high hopes for, but it just didn't really materialize into anything. So there's definitely been some games that we've been really excited for. Um, now, that being said, you did mention that one of the benefits that folks can use on Kickstarter is to really make their games better and to make them shine. Um I would hope that Scythe would still be like a great game without all the Kickstarter extras that got thrown into the mix. Um, oh, well, but most of that was just like upgraded resource bits and stuff like no, that. No, there was more than that, though, because like they all, there's more there's more encounter cards because of the Kickstarter. There was more objective cards put in the game because of the Kickstarter like that. The Kickstarter definitely added value to that game as a whole. And I'm pulling up our top 10 list um, from 2016, and let's see, one, two, three, five, like literally half the games on the list for our top 10 games of the year were from Kickstarter projects that we backed. So there's value to be had, but again, I'm looking at the games that there are, We and here, and here are the companies that publish them. Cool Mini or Not, Level 99 Games. Uh, Jolly Roger Games slash Ultra Pro and Stonemaier Games. All four, all four games coming from established, or all five games coming from established publishers that have been around the block mm-hmm. and kind of know what they're doing at this point. Um, so yeah, that I it just it was just a really interesting thing to kind of dive into those numbers and look at it. Um, and it feels kind of weird looking at Kickstarter as that pre-order system, though. I guess at this point, that's essentially really what it is. Now, I, I mean, I've also noticed that in the past, um, I don't know, I'd say six months, our backing has slowed down a little bit. I think we're being a little bit more selective about the projects well, that we yeah. back. Partly because we're running out of space. That's that's definitely a big part of it. But I don't know. I, I feel like, I guess I feel like that I've known what what this information was for a while subconsciously. So now you're just saying, oh, let me let me pump my brakes here a little bit and really dive into the stuff before I decide to back Well, I'm, I'm definitely being a little bit more discerning. So again, um, now I have the Kickstarter page pulled up, and I'm looking at the last handful of projects that we've backed. So we have Lisboa, Vitalicerda, Eagle Griffin Games. We know what we're getting from, yes. that, from that package. Um, Mega Man Pixel Tactics, level 99. We know what we're generally getting. What the hell is that? We talked about it on the show. Where were you been? That was a month ago. Oh. Um, Spires, TC Petty. We That's know, the one uh, I yeah. saw, and I emailed you when I was going to bed. and was like, honey, look, and you're yeah. like, I already backed it. Yep. Um, the Valeria Card Kingdom expansion. We know what we're getting there. Um, Fate of the Elder Gods, Dice Hate Me. Didn't we just get something Valeria-related? Uh, we got Villages of Valeria ah. recently. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going back. Like, I'm kind of look browsing through my recent Kickstarter backers. And I think Starving Artists is the last game that we backed from a company that was not really established. And that was several months ago. Where the hell is that one? It's still, it's still being made. Don't relax. Don't worry. Um, but it's uh, but yeah. So I if and again if I'm looking here, well, I'm only asking because that's the one that I insisted on. Mm-hmm. And it better not suck. That's yeah, and, my fault. <laughs> yeah, and, but like I said, I'm just it just yeah. Like I said, I'm looking through and it just 
it really seems like that we've gotten quite a bit more discerning in a very short amount of time with mm-hmm. Kickstarter. Now, I'm not one to sit there and say, oh, companies shouldn't, like established companies shouldn't use this. Because like I said, the big benefit that you get is it does make the games better overall. And you could also say it's a little bit downside because in some ways it's bypassing retailers. And yeah, it kind of is at that point. But those games are still usually making their way to a retail place and probably selling as many copies as they would if they didn't go through the Kickstarter right. Avenue from a retail standpoint. Like I, I don't I, I don't know how much the Kickstarter actually affects the retail side of things. I, I don't. I like I don't have access to that information and I'm just kind of speculating. Mm-hmm. Um but like I say it was just interesting to kind of dive into those numbers and kind of look at that data and see kind of where our where our trends were at. And uh and I mean Kickstarter is of course something that we'll continue to use in the future. M and I will. Um but we just mm-hmm. might be even more selective as time goes along and waiting and seeing because if the game is really good eventually it will find its way into the marketplace so we, even if you don't back it straight and away it'll probably find its way on our shelf yeah that's probably true too as long as it plays well <laughs> with two players then that's a good way to go so hopefully you guys found that interesting um, we'd certainly be curious to kind of hear about your kickstarter uh, successes and failures what you guys think about the service do you use it a lot um, how reliable have you found it? And well, it's uh, funny because I haven't had you come to me in a long while here and mm-hmm. say, "Hey, honey, let's sit down and watch this video because you wanted me to, you know, see what I thought about mm-hmm. um, uh, game X, know. Y, or Z." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very cool. Well, I said, hopefully you guys got some value out of that. Um, and that's pretty much all that we have for you this week. So again, don't forget to follow us online. Um, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, don't forget to check out some of the other awesome shows in the Nerd po- or the TNP Studios network of shows, which we're an affiliate with. Um, go to the nerdpocalypse.com and you can see all those cool programs as well. So oh, and didn't they just start doing like videos and stuff? Yeah, we have a couple videos up. Um, we're doing a new series called TNP Presents where we go to different, uh, different like culture spots and kind of do interviews and things like that as well so definitely check that out you can find that on youtube Mm -hmm. uh that's it for us so thank you all for tuning in once again i'm happy to be back with you for another year here and we will talk to you guys later on see ya see ya